Hello. Good morning. Good evening. <laughs> How is everybody? I like your beard. Looks good. Um, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. <laughs> it can be a time of uh, of celebration. Um, I remember, you know, there's some of those dates that just stick out in your head. May 9th, 2009 was one for me. I graduated from Appalachian State University. It was a fun day. It was a day of celebration, family, friends, right? Uh, close of a season of life. Um, it was a cool Saturday. However, it pales in comparison to the very next Saturday, May 16th, 2009. I got married. That's right. Allie and I got married. Those were two big Saturdays, right? Like back to back in somebody's life. Um, but, I mean, it was, I will never forget our wedding. It was pretty awesome. It was before, you know, the Pinterest, Instagram thing. And so we didn't even, I don't even think we had a photographer. Like, we, she was like, let's get, like, one of our dad's friends to take pictures, you know. Um, and so we didn't have drones or anything, but it was, like, it was really cool. Um, not that you have to have a drone at a wedding, you know. Um, we got married at Rosalie Manor. It was... Uh, in uh, near Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. It was gorgeous outside wedding, and um, the food was delicious. Um, my only regret for that day was that I only got one bite of our cake. It was like a chocolate strawberry cake. It was incredible. We toasted with Yoo-Hoo's. Um, that's, yeah, I love Yoo-Hoo. Um, that's where my son got it, I guess. Uh, but that was a, it was a really awesome day, right? And if I bet if we went around the room and we said, hey, would you rather go to a wedding or to a funeral? Everybody would probably choose a wedding, right? Why? Because it's fun, right? And it's more joyful and there's life there. And it, it's just, it's, it's happier, you know, but Mainly, it's joy. There's joy there. It's a celebration of love. It's a celebration of life. A new family is being formed and created, right? And what we're going to see tonight in our passage in Mark 2, 13 through 22, is a few different things. And they can seem like these, these stories could be disconnected. Um, some preachers actually preach this in two sermons, which it very well could be done. Um, you could split it up into two sermons very easily. 13 through 17 could be a sermon about Jesus seeing Levi and the tax collector and hanging out with sinners and calling sinners. And there's a lot of takeaways from that, right? That could be one sermon by itself. The other one could be 18 through 22 where the, they, the religious leaders get upset with Jesus again. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? Like, why are you not fasting? Like John's disciples, why are you not fasting? Why are your disciples not doing what, are, what we're supposed to be doing? And, uh, and Jesus, like, gives some cryptic answers. And so you can see that there, there's two, it seems like they're disjointed. It seems like they're unconnected. I think <clears throat> that both of these stories are connected with one word. And that word is joy. It's joy. And I'm going to, I hope that we're going to see this together. And I, I, I believe that the main point the, the scriptures are trying to teach us is that life with Jesus is marked by joy. Life with Jesus is marked by joy. Life with Jesus is marked by joy 
much like at weddings, right? And not at funerals, which is marked by usually sadness and mourning. Uh, And so um, just as a reminder, we're in the middle right now of five controversies that Jesus has with these religious leaders. We saw the first one last week um, where they had a question. They're like, Jesus, you can't just walk up to somebody and say, you forgive their sins. Only God can do that. And Jesus is like, yes, I can because I am God. All right, so they had, a, they had a, a, an issue with that. The second controversy is, <clears throat> why does Jesus socialize with sinners? Why does he hang out with sinners and tax collectors? The third one is, why doesn't Jesus and his disciples fast like all of the other, like John and, his, and the Pharisees? Why don't, why, don't, why don't y'all do that? So we're going to see those two, the th- two and three tonight. The other two we're going to see in the, in the weeks coming up. But I want us to pray, and then we're going to read the whole thing together, 13 through 22, and dive in. All right, let's pray. Father, you gave us your word, and in the Psalms it says that we are to pray for you to satisfy us with your word, and we know that only you alone can satisfy us, and only you alone, Holy Spirit, can teach us and open up our eyes so that we might see what you want us to see, we might hear what you want us to hear. I pray that we would see Jesus and hear that life apart from you is misery. Lord, that we would, we would know that you prayed for us as your followers to experience full and abundant life, a life full of joy as long as we abide in you. And I pray that that would be the outcome of tonight as we read your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this is God's word, starting in verse 13, Mark chapter 2. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so in this first section, verses 13 through 17, we see Jesus continue to do astonishing things, right? And I'm sure at this point in time, the disciples, like he's only got like four of them right now, right? They're probably thinking, this dude is a walking surprise. Like we have no idea what he's going to do or what he's going to say. Like he keeps them on their toes big time, right? It's totally unexpected. And so in, in verse 13, we see something that's not unexpected though, because we're reminded of Jesus' first priority. We're reminded of why he came in the first place. It says he came to teach people, right? He came to preach the gospel, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is here. So it dawned on me while I was reading this that Jesus teaches crowds often. 
We see that throughout the scriptures that Jesus teaches crowds often. He teaches a lot of people, sometimes thousands of people. Back then when there was no stage and no microphones. And thousands of people came to hear him teach. But, and, and if you've ever been around uh, uh, crowds of people and you've been able to stood up maybe at a ball game or something or you've been on a stage and you've been able to see hundreds of people, a lot of times it's easy to just see a mass of people. But Jesus didn't see a mass of people. He saw individuals. Instead of seeing a sea of people, he saw individuals. Look at verse 14. He saw Levi, and he calls Levi to follow him. Now, without understanding their culture and the nature of a Jew being a tax collector, this verse, verse 14, would not be really shocking, right? But even if you don't understand their culture back then, you could probably still appreciate the fact that even today, a lot of people don't like taxes. People don't like paying taxes, don't like dealing with taxes, don't like dealing with IRS, whatever, it's just a pain in the, in the neck, right? So back then, wasn't, you know, the best job um, to get a lot of friends. So at base level, it's safe to say <clears throat> that Levi is, uh, is not really liked, um, that he was kind of a social outcast, um, he was kind of considered to be a traitor by his fellow Jews because he was working for the enemy, Rome, right? So Kent Hughes said this. He said, the Jewish tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. They were considered to be despicable vermin. They were not only hated for their extortion, but they also because they were the lackeys of the Romans, much as the French hated Nazi collaborators during World War II. These Jews could not serve as a judge or a witness in a court session and were excommunicated from the synagogues. They were the lowest of the lowest. That's a pretty bad description, right, of a tax collector. This was Levi, the guy Jesus just called to come follow him to be his disciple, right? So Jesus sees the lowest of the low, amongst the crowds, and he calls him and says, follow me, and Levi does so immediately, right? Immediately, he, he comes, he gets up, he leaves his booth, and he follows Jesus. He makes a huge sacrifice right here, right? This is a massive career change. He's leaving his former life. He's leaving a good, cushy job, right? He, he's like, I'm going to stop working for the government, and I'm going to go and follow this rabbi. Luke 5, 28 says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So there's no going back for Levi right now. He left everything behind to follow Jesus. I couldn't help but wonder if um, Peter already knew Levi. Because this, remember, this is where Peter's fishing business was. And if Peter goes out on the water and he's fishing and he comes in and he's got to see Levi who's like, you got to give me my cup, bro. You got to pay your taxes, you know? And he's like, there's probably some, some bitterness there. And I couldn't think, it doesn't say that in the scriptures anywhere. But I, I'm, I, it got me thinking, like, curiously, I wonder if there was a lot of tension amongst the disciples. Because Jesus is calling these dudes out from different places, and they all weren't probably best friends. <laughs> we get this picture, like, they were all, like, buddy-buddy like the 12 disciples, but <clears throat> you got to imagine that a lot of them were like, I knew Judas was shady, you know, and, and why wouldn't Levi the guy? He was a tax collector before. Wasn't he the guy who was collecting the money, you know, and, and being in charge of that? But either way, we don't know if there was tensions that were high or not, but we do know this. We do know that both of their lives were changed, 
right? We know that Simon no longer was Simon, he was Peter. We know that Levi no longer was Levi, but he was Matthew. And that Jesus changed this guy so much that he wrote the gospel of Matthew. So this is who Jesus just called to come follow him. So this teaches us a few things, right, about Jesus is that to teach the lost, you got to be around the lost. And let's not just see a mass of people, right, but let's just see individuals. I know it's really easy, especially during the holiday season, you get around crowds, you get in Walmart, if you ever went, if you did go shopping on, at Black Friday or whatever, if you were crazy enough to do that, then like, there's a lot of people out there, and, and it, it can just, you can just like lose sight of the fact that these are individual human beings, so let's not lose sight of that. But Jesus also didn't wait for people to come to him. He went to them. He called Levi out of his tax booth. Wherever he was sitting, he called him out, called him to get up, called him to come follow him. And Jesus also do- doesn't turn people away based upon their past. Oh, you don't know, Jesus. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I used to do for a living. You don't know my old occupation. Jesus is like, I don't care. Come follow me. He calls us and says, come, follow me. And you got to know that Levi does it with joy. He doesn't get up begrudgingly. He's not like, okay, geez. No, he's like, yes, I get to go. It's almost like if you hated your job and somebody was like, I'm going to offer you a better one. You, You would joyfully leave, right? Like so much joy that he goes and tells all his buddies. When you get a new job, don't you go tell people? Everybody knows, right? Like, look at verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So Jesus went to Levi's house for dinner after he calls him out. So all kinds of people followed Jesus, right? This doesn't mean that all of these people were disciples. We do know that later, while Jesus is, is walking and talking and teaching, that a lot of people would follow him, but he, as he continues to teach us, like people are like, man, you're saying some really hard things. I don't know if I can believe this. And they just walk away and they stop following him, right? So there's a lot of people hanging around him, but not all of them are going to be disciples. But it's pretty incredible. If you look at verse 15, this verse reminds us that Jesus doesn't stay at a distance, Right, that Jesus isn't too good to walk into somebody's house. Jesus gets up and goes with this guy into his home. This shows Jesus' humility, that God came near. God entered Levi's house. He didn't stay away. He could have. He didn't have to follow him. He didn't have to go into his home. He didn't have to recline at his table and to be the guest and have Levi host him. He didn't have to do that, but we know that Jesus is a friend of sinners, and the religious leaders cried, unclean, unclean. You're not supposed to do that, Jesus. Look at verse 16, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? R.C. Sproul explains it. He says, Jews who became tax collectors were regarded as traitors. They had to give up their Jewish identity, and they were considered disgraced in the eyes of their families. Furthermore, anyone who dealt with a tax collector as a friend was considered unclean. So what Jesus is doing is shocking, right? A rabbi calling a tax collector to follow him was scandalous enough. But to go to that guy's house after that 
and to have all of his tax collector buddies hanging around and all of these other quote-unquote sinners hanging around. And Jesus is there reclining and they're laughing, having a good time, talking at the table, right? The religious leaders are like, what in the world is going on? Because they also, they were like, this dude is whack. There's nobody like Jesus. They didn't see themselves as unclean sinners. They didn't see themselves as, well, they weren't tax collectors. They were scribes. They were Pharisees. But they didn't see themselves as unclean. They didn't see themselves as unrighteous. They didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw themselves as self-righteous rulers. And they would have never considered themselves to be friends with any of these guys Jesus is talking to. They would never have considered themselves to be sin-sick individuals that needed healing or forgiveness from the great physician. People were already questioning Jesus because he does things. He teaches like nobody else. He forgives sin. He touches lepers. He does things that are unheard of. And now he's raising more questions by his chosen social circle. And he's got a band of misfit disciples. And he's raising a lot of questions, a lot of stir, unconventional to say the least. I wonder how, have you ever been shocked by Jesus? Have you ever just been shocked by Jesus, by the fact that, that he would listen to you, the fact that he would welcome you, the fact that he would stay, the fact that he would show kindness and love? Do you see yourself as a sin-sick individual in need of healing, or do you see yourself as a self-righteous ruler? Do you see yourself as lost in need of being found? As the scripture says, dead in need of being brought to life? Maybe you see yourself as miserable in need of some joy. Well, we've got some good news. Because Jesus is the king of joy, and he wants to give it, his joy, to us. Warren Worsby says he comes, Jesus comes to us in our need. He makes a perfect diagnosis. He provides a final and complete cure. He pays the bill. What a physician. That's a good doctor, right? That's the great physician. And there's no one like Jesus, And no one responded like Jesus either to these questions. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who have are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The irony here is that the Pharisees think that they're righteous, but in reality, they're sick and they need Jesus. But the prideful people believe that they have no need. If you're prideful, you're not gonna ask for help right? I'm not really sick. I I don't need help. I'm not dependent upon anybody. I don't need your help. Don't come to me at offering for me, for you to do something for me because I don't need anybody else. I can do it by myself, right? Pride isolates. It separates. It says, I'm better than you. I would never hang out with those people. I would never talk to those people. I'm, I'm well, I don't need that. I don't need what, what, whatever you're offering, whatever you're saying. Whereas humility is totally different. The humble believe that they need help. 
Humble people are willing to say, I'm desperate. I can't do this. I give up. I need some help, right? And Jesus came for the ones who would say, hey, I don't have it all together. I need help. God's more interested in humble hearts who are dependent upon him than in prideful hearts that say, I don't need anything. And I hope you know that you can be sick and not even know it until maybe somebody points it out, right? You can be sick and not know it, or you don't want to admit it, right? Doctors are supposed to treat sick people, but sometimes people who are sick don't know that they're sick, or as a lot of people in my family like to do, refuse to go to the doctor when they are sick, right? You're like, I know I've got something, but I don't want to go to the doctor until like my wife over the past few weeks was like, you need to go to the doctor. She told me to go to the doctor, go to the doctor. She's like, you got a sinus infection and like bronchitis, you're going to die. You know, I'm like you sound like you're going to die because you're coughing all over the place, right? You get a prescription, you get some steroids, some antibiotics, and you get better, right? But sometimes you won't go unless somebody who loves you says, hey, you're sick. You need to go to the doctor. You need some attention. Let's not be prideful, rebellious, stubborn, Pharisees and refuse to go to the one who can give us what we need. To trust in Jesus to heal us and make us whole. Levi had joy now in his home and the religious leaders were clinging to their pride. Let's turn our attention to verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not? You know how people can't help but compare? Like, people can't help but compare. You compare yourself to other people. Wait, we love to compare athletes to other athletes. We love to compare politicians to politicians, leaders to leaders, pastors to pastors. We just can't help it. We love to compare people to people. That's what's happening in these verses. Hey, Jesus, John doesn't do what you do. Why do you act differently than John? Why do your disciples not do what John's disciples do? Why are you act so different from the Pharisees, right? And hey, um, this is interesting, Jesus. You see, John's not invited to things, but you, you get invited to parties and you go. Why are you not reclusive like John? Why, was Jesus more fun than John? I don't know. He got invited to parties. Like he was there. I don't know, right? He, Jesus attended. He was involved with people. He partook in social gatherings, Right? Matthew 11, 18 through 19 says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. But this controversy wasn't about Jesus' social setting, but his disciples not fasting. Now, I found this very interesting. The Word of God gives instructions in Leviticus for people to fast once a year before the Day of Atonement. It was to be a fast of repentance and forgiveness, a fast of mourning, right? The Pharisees then take that command from the Lord and they add this to it. They add from once a year to two times a week fast. Two times a week. That's a big addition, <laughs> like, like adding rules, you know? And they love to do it and make a big show of it. So that everybody knew, hey, man, you look rough. You okay? I'm fasting, bro. Oh, oh, my bad. You're so much holier than me. 
you know? You know, like it, it, was, it was pious. It was a show. That's why Jesus, when he, when he taught about fasting, he was like, don't, don't do it where people know that you're doing it. Do it silently. Do it, do it quietly. Don't make a big show of it. Jesus and his presence with his disciples changes absolutely everything, right? You remember life with Jesus is marked by joy. So why did the Pharisees not feast and celebrate the coming of the Messiah rather than butcher him with questions and try to poke holes in what he was doing? Because they loved their religiosity more than the God whom they thought they were serving. They loved their rules and their traditions and their religion more than the Lord and his word. Therefore, they didn't see Jesus for who he was. They didn't see that in Jesus' presence there is joy. And it's a time of celebration, not a time of mourning or sadness. So let's see how Jesus responds to them in verse 19. And Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Don't you love how Jesus always responds with a question? People ask him a question, he responds with a question. Jesus uses a well-known social custom in Israel as an example. He uses weddings to answer them. And he's saying, I am the bridegroom. So in this passage, Jesus is the bridegroom. And that would have been shocking in and of itself. Because they would immediately have known, if they read the Bible, which the scribes and Pharisees knew their Bible, that only God is considered the bridegroom. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And Jeremiah prophesies of a new covenant using marriage language. Jeremiah 31, 32, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And in the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom, and the bride is the church. So what Jesus says in verse 20 is pretty sad and pretty dark when you think about it from the wedding illustration mindset. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So this is an image of a groom being removed from the joy of the wedding party, right? If a groom is removed Right? Let's say there's a bachelor party, for example, and the groom is removed. Are the, the dudes going to be happy? No, not at all. That's who they're celebrating, right? At the actual wedding, if the groom's removed, nobody's going to be happy, especially not the bride, okay? So this illustration that Jesus gives is an illustration of death in verse 20. He is referring to his death, his resurrection, and his departure when he's no longer there. And notice that there's a, there's a marked difference between the sad fasting of the Pharisees and our fasting today. Our fasting today is supposed to lead to joy. Our fasting today is supposed to lead to knowing the Lord more and enjoying communion with him more and us expressing through fasting, through saying no to something else, saying no to, to things that we normally run to or spend time on, and, and say, I completely and utterly depend upon you. You alone, Jesus, are enough. Fasting is saying, Jesus, you're all that I need. I'm content with you. I have no need for anything else. 
And Jesus closes our section of scripture tonight with two very cryptic verses that need some explanation. So let's read them and then see what they mean. No one sews a piece of untruck cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. The worst tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus came to bring new joy, not patch up something that was old. A new day is dawning with the arrival of Jesus. That's what he's teaching right here. This is new beginning, new life. Jesus is bringing something in that is brand new and the old can't contain it. The new covenant is replacing the old covenant. In his commentary, Mark Strauss says this about Jesus' response. He responds with a series of analogies that identify his presence as the arrival of God's eschatological salvation, a joyful celebration that is not just a reformation of Judaism, but is creating something radically new and transforming. This is the new wine of Christianity, which cannot be contained by the old wineskins of Judaism. Judaism is giving way to Christianity. In Jesus, the Hebrew faith finds its fulfillment and completion. So Jesus is saying, I am new cloth. I am new wine. I'm not just an addition to your old life. This is entirely new. This is a new life. There's no blending of fabrics here. This is new clothes. This is no compromise between the old and the new. And that's what we see we're called to all throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Jesus has taken our place and clothed us in his righteousness. So how in the world does all of this affect us today? How does this affect us right now? Well, simply Christianity is incompatible with every other religion in the world. Because Jesus changes everything. Jesus, it's not, it's not something plus Jesus. It's Jesus only. It's Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus nothing is joy. That's the equation. All old traditions, structures, rules, they've got to go when Jesus comes. R.C. Sproul said it would be impossible to be a Christian and keep the old ways. Impossible. The sinner being wed to Jesus in spiritual marriage changes absolutely everything. Warren Wiersbe, old commentator, said this. This will explain the the marriage analogy pretty well. Two people are not married just because they know each other or even because they have strong feelings about each other. In order to be married, they must commit themselves to each other and make their commitment known. Those who trust in Christ, the believer, immediately enters into the joys of this spiritual marriage relationship, bearing Christ's name, sharing his wealth and power, enjoying his love and protection, and one day living in his glorious home in heaven. When you are married to Christ, life becomes a wedding feast in spite of trials and difficulties. That's pretty awesome, right? And everybody knows that when somebody gets married, their life is going to be totally different from that moment on. Everybody knows that, right? A married man does not act like he's single, or he shouldn't. A married dude doesn't act like he's single anymore because he's not. Like, I remember when I got married, everything changed. Or I couldn't go back to live 
how I used to live. I definitely wasn't going to go back to live with the four dudes I lived with in college, right, in a house with four guys, right, because I had a new roommate now, and she was a way better roommate than those jokers were, you know? But seriously, Allie and I would both say, I believe, that marriage is a joy. Now, it's not always a joy because I'm not a perfect husband. Amen? She's in here. She's not going to say anything. (laughs) But Jesus is a perfect bridegroom. He's a perfect husband. He never fails. He's always faithful. His love is steadfast. He's trustworthy and true. He's a solid rock and unmoving. He is life and joy and peace and hope and security. Life with Jesus is marked by joy, like at a wedding. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus was a huge fan of weddings. He was a huge fan of weddings. His first miracle was at a wedding. He changed water to new wine to demonstrate joy, the joy of the new covenant, the joy of something superior is here. Jesus is superior joy, superior to everything else in this life. Only Jesus can bring true joy. He used illustrations like this one in Mark 2 about weddings. He also told parables about weddings. In Matthew 22, he said, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Don't be like those who reject Jesus, but be like Levi, who immediately, joyfully gets up and follows Jesus. Jesus says the bridegroom laid down his life for his bride, the church. He purchased her to provide eternal security and eternal joy for her. That's you and me, those who trust in Christ alone. Jesus gives his bride, his followers, life to the full, abundant, joyful life. He is the author, listen, he is the author, the giver, and the orchestrator of marriage. From the beginning to the end, in Genesis, he was the creator father who gave away Eve, the first bride. He also was the God who officiated the first wedding. He started all of human history with a marriage. He's going to end it with a marriage. As the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to write with wedding imagery of a joyful bride and festive celebration, Revelation 19 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. As awesome as that is, we don't have to wait until that feast to have joy because our king is alive and he has purchased joy for us right now. And the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. 
In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Anybody know what's at the Father's right hand? Jesus. That's right. The resurrected Jesus. So do you know true joy? Is your joy dependent upon your situation, your circumstance, or your environment? Is your joy dependent upon who you're hanging out with, who your friends are, what people say to you? Is your life marked by joy? Followers of Jesus should be the most joyful people in the entire world because our king has come and he's coming back and nothing can take our joy from us. Is your life marked by joy? Do people look at you and say, man, you've got something that I don't have. I can't put my finger on it. I don't really know what it is. I can't identify it. But you, there's something different about you. You've got something I don't have. What in the world is it? What do you call that? An open door to share the gospel and share joy, to share Jesus with them. Jesus himself prayed that we would have joy. Joy in him, abundant joy. Joy now, untold joy forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you so much for the joy that you came to share, the joy that you purchased for us, the joy that you prayed for us to have. You long for your disciples to live lives that are marked by joy, the joy of a wedding feast, of a great celebration, a celebration of love and commitment, of relationship, that is eternal, that is life-giving, that is full of peace and hope. It's marked by joy. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in the room who has never experienced the joy that only your gospel can give. Lord, I pray that you would infuse their life and their heart and their mind and their soul with joy tonight. In Jesus' name.